Today on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, we talk with Dr. Walter Moberly, someone who comes to us from across the pond in England, and who will share with us his time and expertise with relation to Bible interpretation and application. We're talking about Bible application on this season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, but you know theologians and biblical scholars, they like to clear their throats, they like to build a foundation, and that's something that Dr. Moberly has spent a lot of time doing. He's helped me do it with some essays that I've recently read. I talked to him about those essays on this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast, season two. We're still talking about Bible application, and I have invited onto the podcast today Professor R. W. L. Moberly, and you can tell by the number of initials that he is from Britain, and you'll be able to tell as soon as he speaks that that's where he's from as well. Um, I have been reading a fair bit of Moberly recently and really benefited from it, and I think you will as well. Dr. Moberly, thank you so much for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. I invited you onto the podcast really on the strength of one essay of yours that I found to be uh, especially insightful. It really grabbed me. I read it carefully twice, and I also spent time going back through my notes on it. It was in the book, The Future of Biblical Interpretation. I dipped and dug into several other of your books, including your 2020 book, your most recent book, I assume, The Bible in a Disenchanted Age, The Enduring Possibility of Christian Faith. But it was to this essay that my mind kept returning. I think the intellectual currents of our day have forced us all to answer some very healthy questions about our Bible interpretation. And I think you're going to help us with that, Dr. Moberly. But some more introductions are in order. I've watched enough British television to know that when you meet a British person, you're supposed to perform certain elaborate rituals, but my office is too small, so I'll just have to ask you to introduce yourself. Please tell the audience of the Bible Study Magazine podcast how you, Professor Moberly, serve the church. Oh, thank you. Um, although I publish as R.W.L. Moberly, I'm, I'm known to everybody as Walter Moberly, so I'm, I'm Walter. Um, I'm uh, a, a scholar. I uh, came to a living faith um, when I was at college. Um, for me, the outworking of that faith, as I thought and prayed, seemed to, be to get ordained, um, and I'm an ordained minister um, in the Anglican. Um, I remember uh, when I went to see my bishop, when there was a question over where I should do my training. He he looked me up and down and said, "You've got a good academic track record. Church needs good theologians. Go where you'll get theological training." And you know that was a, a sort of a haunter. And and I've always enjoyed academic work, but there was also a wise friend who was a student pastor in Cambridge when I was doing my doctorate. Who rather nicely said to me, as a good friend can, Walter, your intellectual gifts are more unusual than your pastoral gifts. <laughs> a sensitive way, a tactful way to give some direction. Um, 
So, for various reasons, I found myself um, as a professional scholar at Durham University in the northeast of England for the last 35 years. I had four years in parish ministry before coming here. Um, Excellent. But I'm essentially a Christian, you know, wanting to understand the Bible and wanting to help others understand it better. You don't have the time to study it in the way that I do. I think you have described our audience as well with most of that, where these are Christians who want to understand the Bible, and in many cases, they are teachers of some kind, whether they're just dads who are leading in a family devotion, or they are pastors. And this podcast, I think, also helps Bible teachers like that to teach the Bible to others. This season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is, like I said, all about application. So we're trying to use the Bible to answer real life questions. We're trying to obey God's word in daily life. And I want to have our discussion, if at all possible, keep aiming in that direction. But I do believe in laying a theoretical groundwork, uh, a theological foundation for everything I do. And I I really think you can help us do that today, Dr. Moberly. So let me just jump into some questions for you. This essay that you wrote in The Future of Biblical Interpretation, it was entitled Biblical Hermeneutics and Ecclesial Responsibility. Can you translate the technical terms in that title for an audience which may or may not be familiar with them? Yeah, thank you. Um, Hermeneutics has become a very fashionable word. Um, It's about how we read and interpret. Um, It's thinking about the nature of interpretation. Um, What questions do we ask? Why do we ask them? What moves do we make? And it's just trying to bring that into a little more sort of self-reflective awareness because there are many different ways in which you can read, many different questions you can bring to the Bible as other texts. And so it's some you know, sort of reflection on that for hermeneutics. Ecclesial, well, scholars have become keen on the word ecclesial because the old word ecclesiastical sounds terribly clunky and has a lot of baggage. <laughs> Right. of a slightly sort of negative resonance attached to it. Um, so we increasingly say ecclesia, which means to do with the church. Um, and so as a scholar, I feel a responsibility, I mean, primarily to God, <laughs> um, but also to the church of which I am a part, the body of Christ. Um, and Although I also have, I'm responsible to those who see me in the secular university, um, I have a responsibility to them and to my students. Um, I also have a responsibility to the church. And for me, the really interesting thing about being a Christian scholar in a secular university is asking how how can one uh, do justice to both contexts? Be right. faithful to God and while also doing stuff that you know won't simply get ruled out of court by the people that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. And and if those two responsibilities, those uh, two audiences for your theology, if they conflict, 
it's clear which one is more important, but there are ways, as you show at this point in time, to serve the church with your scholarship and to serve the academy. Now, in this essay, you do a lot of what I would call throat clearing to defend what Christians do unselfconsciously all the time, which is just to read the Bible as Christian scripture, not as a mere record of people's historical thoughts about God, but instead as bearing God's authority. Now, what if no one does this kind of throat clearing and groundwork laying? What's the danger you perceive will happen if essays like yours that talk about interpreting the Bible with ecclesial responsibility, if they don't get written? Thank you. Um, I mean, the danger varies from person to person. I think for, for many ordinary Christians, kinds of questions I'm asking and clearing my throat over at some length, they aren't a problem. They just get on with it, and that's fine. I don't have a problem. Um, It's just that um, there are questions that get raised simply by their own reading of the biblical text or by questions of, you know, how, how do we understand the Bible in the modern technological world of the 21st century? And if there aren't good guides to help, people can often lose their way. I mean, you know, some of the the most famous biblical and influential biblical scholars in both the States and in England are folk who started as Christians and threw it in because they felt that stuff that they were being told didn't cut it when the high questions came. Like Bart Ehrman. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's the perfect example um, in in England, arguably, to someone like David Klein in the Old Testament as an evangelical Christian, and he, he feels to be some way from that. Uh, yeah, so, you know, because they were given, it seems to me, probably insufficient help at the right time to see how to negotiate difficulty, but that they were with an all or nothing while I'm sort of buy a complete package that I've got of believing the Bible and having faith, or I throw it all in, um, and I might say, well, no, 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 no. Let's look at how we can think a little more about some of these issues, which may be really serious, but there may be better ways of handling them than sometimes supposed. So uh, Charles Taylor in A Secular Age talks about people being cross-pressured, that there was a time when you could be an unreflective, unselfconscious reader of Scripture because everybody around you accepted it as Christian Scripture. But now we have secular faculties that are dedicated to the study of Scripture. We have plenty of other options available in our pluralist society. So it is very important that we sit down to think, what is our ecclesial responsibility? What's our responsibility to the church? And how can we just defend the simple, unselfconscious reading of the people in the pew next to us of the Bible as Christian scripture? Now, one of the things that the Bible Study Magazine does and that Logos Bible Software and other Faith Life products do, and I work for the company because I love our mission, is we invite people into an academic conversation about the Bible that does continually keep the church in mind, at least at its best. And you opened your essay 
with a little story about how very little guidance you received at the seminary you attended for how to make your academic work benefit the church. I remember you were talking about Pauline authorship in particular and, you know, all the complicated argumentation that goes on in the academy and you step up to speak in church and you just intuitively realize this is just not going to fly. It's not going to benefit them and isn't the way they read the Bible. I, I want to read a few lines you wrote and ask you to do some translating again. I'm going to ask you to have some patience with me because I think you're say, saying something really profound that can be a massive benefit to our listeners. You wrote about... Can I just interrupt and say? Sure. In a sense, my professional career as a scholar um, has been an attempt, as it were, to resolve those questions that I felt in my ordination training the disconnect between what I was doing in my academic study and what I was doing when I was expected to preach or to read scripture devotion or lead a Bible study. Yes. It was that disconnect that's been my project. So, Excellent. Sorry. Yeah, no. And so you're you're helping me say the next thing I was going to say. Uh, you're, I, I was going to talk about how you wrote of how, how many students in schools, uh, seminaries in particular, you know, ministerial training, they feel they have to accept a scholarly consensus. But then you ask, how many beginning students have sufficient facility in ancient history and philological analysis, you know, looking deep into words, to genuinely, genuinely work out difficult issues for themselves? The, you said the challenge for the student can feel less like pioneering philological honesty than like a question of willingness to give allegiance to a scholarly community whose self-identity tends to be cast in terms of its arguments being empirical, non-dogmatic, and open to revision, and so apparently different from the ecclesial. Okay, that was a, a big chunk of text to say, let, let me summarize, and then you, I want you to translate too. Um, that students come into school and they see the august names of the professors on top of their textbooks and they feel as if they've got to, like you said, buy totally into you know, this new community rather than their church community. But, but then you said, nonetheless, it may be that a scholarly paradigm of biblical study that has nothing to say about questions of life practices or trust other than that they're in principle irrelevant. In other words, they're just they're just being neutral, they're just being scholarly and academic. You're, you say that that view is itself open to question. It, it's, it's a paradigm rooted, you said, in a certain kind of classic liberal individualism, okay? I want you to translate all of that, I just gave you a big chunk of your own writing, uh, into terms understandable by the Bible Study Magazine podcast listening audience. Um, yeah, it, it, it's partly to do with the realization that in every context of life, we are influenced by that context. You know, when we go to church, when we when we first come to faith, become part of the body of Christ, you realize there's all sorts of things we've got to sort of pick up. You know, okay, the, what do I do? Um, how do I pray? You know, uh, what kind of moves do I make? We, we seek to absorb and become part of something that's bigger than us, that's already there. Sure. Um, and we do something similar when we when we go to college or university department or whatever, where, again, there's a sense of, oh, you know, I've got to learn the rules of the game and become part of it. Now, I mean, for me, part of the difficulty was that I think most of my 
teachers when I first did theology a long time ago, <laughs> back in the uh, in the seventies. Um, they were I've heard they, of those seventies. They were Christian ministers, um, and yet I still felt this profound sort of frustration and disconnect. Um, and if I asked them about it, they didn't really seem to feel that there was a problem. You know, a good study of, you know, the synoptic problem or the theology of St. Paul in the first century or, you know, the composition of the Pentateuch, whatever, you know, these were just the questions that, you know, any responsible person should ask um, and consider, and that you will just understand the Bible better as a result. And my particular question, but people that don't care about this, um, wasn't felt the problem. Um, and to some extent, I mean, you know, this, this then sort of takes on back into the sort of the history of how biblical studies developed as a as an independent discipline um, in the in the 17th and 18th centuries, where it became a separate discipline by virtue of becoming a sort of a study of ancient history. Um, it was supposed in the 17th century, he was most explicit about this. He wanted as it were, to downgrade the importance of the Bible, um, partly the, the, the religious wars and controversies today. Right. And one way of sort of turning the temperature down and say, well, the Bible is a collection of ancient documents whose meaning is to be discerned by reading them in their ancient contexts. Um, and what came later, well, that's not the Bible, that's just what people made of it. And that move by Spinoza, yeah. And then developed by others was profoundly influential. And many Christians were happy to go with it because they saw the force of, well, yes, these are ancient texts and you need to relate them to their context of origin and so on. Um, but, you know, we still have our faith without always seeing the disconnect that was coming in. And it just became. And what's sometimes called a sort of a relay race model. You know, the biblical scholar tells you what the texts originally meant, and then the systematic theologian or the ethicist will tell you what they mean now. Um, you know, they sort of hand over, the biblical scholar hands over the result of their study to someone else whose job it is to say. Except that, of course, biblical scholars never pass over the baton. They don't let go. They still keep arguing about it. They don't say, oh, we finished. Now you can have it. Right. Um, <laughs> And the questions of the systematic theologian and the ethicist um, often aren't the questions that the biblical scholar was asking in the first place. And so right. uh, how many theologians and ethicists said, well, we've got to do our own biblical study because what the biblical scholar is doing isn't helping us. So, again, that, that's, I guess, just sort of re-describing sort of a problem of a, of a disconnect, I think, goes deep. Um, and has gone deep among many Christians who feel that, you know, the only way they can be responsible scholars are sort of grammatical, historical questions about the meaning of the Bible in its ancient context, and then sort of take for granted, well, of course, that will speak to today. Hmm. And, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It's not so easy. <laughs> 
Right. You, you know, you wouldn't be the first thinker to point out that classical liberal individualism, and by liberal, I don't mean a, polit- a political party in America or in Britain, um, views the person as something, uh, okay, views religious faith as sort of a uh, a veneer on top of the real person, something that could be abstracted away from the person, and therefore you could, in principle, in that view, step into the academy and speak about the Bible, quote-unquote, objectively, and set aside your faith. You can bracket your faith commitments. But what that's produced, I'm hearing you say, is a set of scholars who have nothing to give to the church. Ultimately, because nobody can do that. What If you step out of the ecclesial context in which your prime allegiance is to God, you're going to step into another context in which your prime allegiance is to tenure uh, or, you know, uh, prominence in your field. And uh, you're trying to bridge those gaps, trying to have some responsibility toward the academic community while also maintaining that prime allegiance to God, not bracketing your faith out of your writing. Yes? Yes. Amen. Good. I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations, to teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software and all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped fact book, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. 
So I, I read something else you wrote in uh, an essay. You, you seem to be somebody who they like to tap for fest shrifts and collections of essays. And uh, Michael Allen, in his book that we do sell in Logos, Theological Commentary, Evangelical Perspectives, had you write something. I also read the essay right after you by uh, Don Carson, which was excellent. And uh, you wrote an essay in which you said, although it's a basic principle of interpretation that one should interpret in context, it's clear that there are many different possible contexts. Already within their Old Testament frame of reference, you said, many texts have been recontextualized. And I thought immediately of uh, some of my favorite psalms. You know, some of the superscriptions show that individual psalms were written in very particular circumstances. I was just talking about this with a previous guest, my Old Testament professor, Ken Casillas. Um, but these psalms were collected for us by people who, under the inspiration of the Spirit, felt they would be useful to, to other believers in other contexts. So, like Psalm 51, you know, I have not committed adultery or murder, uh, but I still dearly love Psalm 51 and David's confession of sin there. And I'm, I'm certain that David and the Spirit meant me to. You, you wrote one more thing here, and I want to send it to you for comment. You wrote, the very process of preserving and collating material within a scriptural collection means that recontextualization features already within the biblical canon. This can sometimes be extensive, you said, um, and you give the example of the, of the Pentateuch or many of the Psalms where th these have been you know, preserved and combined with other writings. Okay, so I want to ask you, what other Old Testament texts show evidence of already being recontextualized, and what does this tell us about how to apply biblical texts today? Um, I think there's, there's more than one issue there. I mean, in terms of evidence of recontextualizing, um, we often don't really know. We're making inferences. Sure. Um, so, for example, scholars have made much of the fact now that the Psalter in uh, Psalm 1, a psalm that celebrates the importance of Torah, um, and that that shows signs of, as it were, you know, Torah, God's instruction, guidance, law, already being something very important. On his law, he meditates day and night. Yeah, and that, that seems to be sort of bringing the Psalms into conjunction with the principle of Torah and maybe you know, what we call more specifically. So there you may have actual sort of evidence in the text. Um, but otherwise, it's hard that, you know, a lot of the biblical writers might not have envisaged themselves keeping the company they're now keeping. Um, you know, did Isaiah envisage himself ending up alongside Jeremiah, you know, did Ecclesiastes Kohelet envision himself ending up alongside you know, well, probably not. Um, but now they are in one collection that encourages what is now called contextuality, you know, making links between uh, different writings, even if their original authors hadn't necessarily envisaged it. You know, I mean, no, but they didn't. Is that necessarily a problem? Um, 
And I think recontextualization doesn't just happen, you know, within the canon, it happens outside. I mean, many an evangelistic address uses the words of Jesus, behold, I stand at the door and knock on Revelation 3. No, in the context in which it's used evangelistically, it makes perfect sense. You know, people can understand that the image of the door of one's life, Christ knocking and open to let him in and so on, makes perfect sense. Now, you know, one can point out, you know, well, it doesn't really mean that in Revelation chapter 3. You know, this is a warning to a complacent church about Christ's coming in judgment. Uh, the thrust of it is not, you know, an evangelistic appeal. But that means that the words are open to take on a slightly different sense according to the context. Um, you know, the the evangelistic use is not a million miles from the revelation. Nonetheless, it's lost revelations framing of what Christ knocking at the door means. To use it in a, in a different way that still seems to me an entirely responsible way. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a sort of a recontextualization, you know, within the life of the continuing uh, Christian church that seems to me, you know, makes sense. And if you point out, well, the writer of Revelation didn't envisage that, you say, well, so. Well, I, let me ask about that. So, because aren't some recontextualizations, some applications of Scripture out of bounds? I mean, I, I certainly have both heard, and I'm going to have to think, used, I stand at the door and knock to speak of evangelism. But when in seminary, let's say, I don't recall exactly when this happened, when in seminary I was presented with the reminder, actually the context is talking about something different, that actually caused me to step back and not want to use that in anything more than an elusive way. You know, we will quote Shakespeare and we're kind of playing with language. But that's actually something I, I don't want to do with the Bible, right? I mean, how, when does my recontextualizing get so far from the intention of the biblical writer and the spirit that it's illegitimate? Well, good question. But I mean, the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, has honored much evangelistic use of Revelation 3.20, um, which may mean that the Holy Spirit is slightly less bothered about some of our concerns for original context and meaning um, than we are. You know, it's at least... Um, but again, it, obviously, there, there isn't a simple answer. Um, you know, for, for, for using scripture well, one, one needs certain discipline. You, know, you need to be disciplined in knowing the languages, ideally the Hebrew and the Greek. How do the words flow? What do they mean? And sometimes they're quite open in meaning, and other times there's something very different. So, you know, you can't lose those disciplines. Um, and you also have, and you may be coming on to this, what, what I call the rule of faith. I mean, it's an ancient notion that it seems to me is time uh, for much more revival, um, where a rule of faith, at the very least, means a sort of a rich sense of how things go, what makes Christian sense. 
when we first come to face, we don't have much idea. But, you know, if we get involved in the life of the church, we start to pick up the sense of, okay, this is the kind of way it goes. Now, you know, that can still be open to learn further. You know, Baptists and Roman Catholics don't have identical rules of faith. You know, there's a family relationship between them. They're all centred on God in Christ, but, you know, nonetheless, there's different kinds of emphases. But it seems to me that one of the things that will be really important for good use, recontextualized use of scripture, is that it fits with a rule of faith, which is something itself drawn from scripture. So a synthetic sense of these are the kinds of things that make Christians sense. And so, you know, for me, the whole I stand up and not, it's very well within a wider rule of faith, even if, you know, um, Revelation 3 quite invisible. Um, so I think there are lots of things in play. Uh, okay, that's, yeah, you know, it, it is the job of the scholar to, to remind everybody there are lots of things in play. And I, I like what you said. Um, there is a degree to which I have to bow before the actual use that fellow believers have made of individual passages, even when I'm wondering if if I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, and that would be a f- perfect example from Revelation 3.20. Let me give you another one, though, that I'm not ready to bow before, and you see if you agree. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but a couple of years ago, I was surfing around on Amazon, and somehow the algorithms there presented me with a Christian bookmark. And it was a very frilly bookmark. Um, uh, It was uh, uh, giving a Bible passage. And the Bible passage was somewhere from Genesis. I was just listening to this in the New King James Audio Bible. Um, May the Lord watch between me and you. And, um, you know, that's used to say, you know, may the Lord watch over me and you. Actually, I should say it quoted the King James, I'm pretty sure. May the Lord watch between me and thee. But if you go to Genesis, whatever it is, in the original context, 30-something, I think, and you read it, this is, this is actually Laban threatening Jacob. And the reason it's even ambiguous at all, uh, enough for people to make what I would call as a misinterpretation, is that Laban's been warned, don't say anything to Jacob, either positive or negative. So all he can end up saying is, okay, well, God's going to watch you. <laughs> And, and he's saying, don't mistreat my daughters as you, you take them away. So, uh, is that read out of bounds to put it on a bookmark and to make it say, you know, a greeting card message, may the Lord watch over me and you? Um, well, it, it depends what kind of claim is being made. Because again, it seems to me the recontextualization is really important. You know, uh, it's often, you know, may the Lord walk between me and thee while we are absent one from the other. You know, so sort of Christians parting, you know, invoke it as a prayer. Now, in the context of using it like that, it makes very good sense. Now, you know, but it, as you say, it's not what they ban. It's right there. So one's not claiming, you know, this is what the words mean in, in Genesis. But the words in themselves are open, as it were, so that if you use them between friends parting as a prayer 
for the Lord's blessing on me and on the relationship. I mean, the words can fully bear that meaning. And they're being used within, you know, context of a rule of faith where it's a different context, you know, because they never got on very well. You know, they spent years cheating each other and lying to each other through the teeth. Um, <laughs> um, so, as I say, if one's not claiming, and, you know, this is what the rule of faith means, but these words, which have one sense, in Genesis can have a richer and more positive sense when used, then I'm kind of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, maybe so, I'm more easily pleased than you. Um, <laughs> on this one point, I have to say, yes, I, I just can't go there. So I'm going to keep pushing you to tell us what's out of bounds. I'll give you one more example, and then you can come up with an example as well. It's, it's fine. I was at a funeral, and the, the preacher talked about the woman with the issue of blood. Now, I've written a lot on the King James Version, and I know what issue means in 1611-era English. Uh, but he said he recontextualized it, recontextualized it by uh, appealing to the contemporary sense of issues. The preacher said, this woman had issues. You got issues. I got issues. We all got issues. And he started talking about problems that people had in their lives. I mean, aren't some readings and some applications, some uses of scripture just so far from the intent of the author or the spirit that I just have to say, you know, time out, red card. We've got to stop right there. Oh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm absolutely not wanting to say that anything goes. Absolutely not. I mean, I've had a lifetime of listening to, you know, good and bad <laughs> things and uses of scripture. Um, so tell us a bad one. Give us an example. Well, What's out of bounds? I mean, a, a bad one, which I think is perhaps interesting to think about, is, you know, what we often loosely call a prosperity gospel, um, where... People can take passages in ways that, you know, look to be in line with what sense of the text might be, you know, promises in the Old Testament that, you know, obedience will lead to blessing and and so on. Um, but then to use these in a way that separates them out from other facets of Scripture, from, as it were, the big picture um, in which we are also called Namely, fullness, to trust, um, to walking through the valley of the shadow of death and knowing that the Lord is with us. And that, you know, the supreme and central symbol of Christian faith is the cross. Um, and a lot of prosperity gospels sit a little lightly to what it means that the heart of our faith is in Gethsemane and Calvary and the Easter tomb. Um, you know, they take things from scripture that, and, you know, imply, you know, if, if you're faithful, God will bless you and life will be great. And that seems to me a distortion. It's not that you can't find things in scripture that say that, but they're being taken too much in isolation. Bad use. Yeah. I, maybe what I'm hearing you saying goes along with a question I was also planning to ask you. Because uh, your your essay in the future of biblical interpretation was first uh, 
brought to my attention by a more liturgically oriented friend who was a PhD grad from TEDS and works at Lexham Press alongside me. And we were talking about the rule of faith. <clears throat> and I had been exposed in my more low church evangelical training to that concept, but I hadn't really heard it appealed too much. So let me see if I'm accurately understanding you here, and then you can help us understand the rule of faith better a little bit. Um, I think my concern with letting somebody use Genesis, whatever it was, to make a bookmark that says what it's not saying, and Revelation 3, to have Jesus saying, hey, I'm waiting to uh, for you to respond to me, uh, please open the door to me, um, or, or the woman with the issue of blood. And any one of these ways in which we're, we're applying scripture apart from the intent of the Spirit is that even if right now, that interpretation ends up according with a, the big picture of Christian faith. And how many times have we heard that? You know, preachers who are, are well-meaning, they, they're godly, and yet they're misinterpreting the text, but what they're saying still is consistent with Christian faith and with the rest of the Bible. But my concern is that over time, you let people do that enough, and they build a different big picture, whether the prosperity gospel or uh, the related faith that Christian Smith calls moralistic, therapeutic deism. <clears throat> you know, it's just, it really is so easy, just as the Pharisees made void the word of God by their tradition, a passage I think about all the time, and just as Jesus said to them, have you not read? Um, it, it was a right reading of scripture that should have saved them from their wrong big picture. Um, I want to be generous. I want to be charitable <clears throat> toward people who are well-meaning and make a mistake about the meaning of the word issues. But I want to hold on to authorial intent, both of the individual writer and of the spirit, although that latter one gets more complicated and we'll talk about it, um, because I don't, I don't want that big picture to change. Okay, so back to the rule of faith. I think what I hear you saying is, um, and maybe this is just your uh, your maturity and therefore a generosity that often comes with that. Um, you're more willing in this conversation to let r readings that I would you know call out of bounds exist in the Christian church and be used as long as they accord with the rule of faith. Yes or no? And what is the rule of faith? That's a lot of questions, but let's boil it down to, is that about right? And what is the rule of faith? Uh, lo lots of questions there. I mean, to some extent, see, you, you, you're referring to these as readings of Scripture, and, uh, and I'm not sure that Revelation 3.20 or Genesis 30.31 are meant to be readings of Scripture. I think they're reuses of scriptural language, um, and because they're reuses in a different context, they use the scriptural wording to have a force that it doesn't have exactly in the biblical text. But at least if such people know what they're doing, you know, they will say, it is not a reading of the biblical text. This is a use of scripture's wording, which is open to being reused. Um, so, um, and, and likewise, you see, I, I don't want I mean, clearly, you know, what writers meant matters. It's a sort of a fundamental control on our reading. But I don't think one can simply equate 
what the writer intended with the intention of the spirit. Um, which isn't to say that the spirit wasn't, you know, working through the writer and the writer seeking to be, you know, sort of responsive to the pressure of the spirit to say this and not that. Um, but the wording can often take on new meaning or fuller meaning, you know, as I'm on a notion of a sensus plania or a fuller meaning that texts have. Um, and not least that we see when the scriptures of Israel, what we call the Old Testament, are read in the light of Christ. Um, because, you know, in the light of Christ, you, I think it seems to me we reread the Old Testament in ways that weren't necessarily identical with what original writers and authors envisaged. I mean, even in Isaiah 53, um, well, you know, the, the resonances with Jesus are immense. You know, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think the writer was envisaging Jesus. Um, it's, I think, most like Isaiah 53 in oracle terms. It's a testimony by servants of the servant of the Lord. Those who whose own vision of God was renewed by a particular figure, maybe the prophet, um, and they say, Lord, who's believed what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, because they then tell the story of this guy who everyone thought was a loser. Yeah. Um, we thought him smitten by God. You know, he, he, he was out. And yet we came to recognize. Now, that I think is something, you know, going on in ancient Israel where they weren't as such thinking about Jesus. But when you then see Jesus, Isaiah 53 has a whole lot fuller meaning. You know. Census plenior. A census plenior in Latin, a fuller meaning. I mean, that's you know, one way of putting it. Um, but I think quite a lot of the Old Testament... Um, Again, you know, I find, I think it's because of my faith in Christ that Jeremiah is one of the prophetic books I spend most time with because I see someone faithful up against the odds. You know, he has a ministry of some 40 years and almost nobody wants to listen to him. Um, most dislike him, some actively hate him and try and kill him. Um, but the Lord preserves him. Um, it's a picture of faithfulness against the odds long term. And, you know, at least for me, you know, the world of the 21st century feels yeah, 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 that's the calling. Um, and that, you know, it's close to what we see in Gethsemane and Calvary and the Easter morning. Yeah. Um, so, again, you know, I, I read Jeremiah in a way that, you know, someone in the 7th or 6th centuries wouldn't quite have read it. There has to be a level at which the authorial intention of the Spirit um, both includes and exceeds the intention of the biblical writers, and you nailed it. it at the very least, 
in the messianic passages in the Old Testament. Something is going on that, you know, even angels long to look into. And First Peter says that, you know, the prophets were searching and inquiring to know, you know, what, what were even they really talking about? So you've got Isaiah 53, and I think of, again, of the Psalms, actually. And you read these messianic Psalms, and it's, and it's almost like, you're you're reading along about the king and suddenly you go up an octave and you're talking about the king in a way that really could only apply to David's greater son, the Messiah. And that is where I want my generosity and in interpretation to come from. And I think that's what I hear you say as well, that um, I, I want to be wedded and tied to the biblical text. I don't want to make applications or interpretations that are out of bounds, but I do recognize that the Spirit had an intent that I need to seek along with the intent of the biblical writers. I'm going to hit you with one more question then, and I've taken up enough of your time after that. Let's, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised um, given your interests, and actually my interests uh, are similar to yours. I like the throat clearing and the foundation laying, like I said before. We haven't gotten to an actual ton of Bible application like the theme of the season was supposed to be, but I'm going to say that's okay, okay? But I'm going to try to get us there, um, but still use your gifts and bents, okay? I'm going to ask you a similar question to one I asked that same Old Testament professor I had on the show recently. Psalm 56, I believe it is, the, the, the psalmist writes, and I believe this is David, if I recall correctly, um, he says, uh, evil men and strangers have risen up against me, okay? And there are many of these passages, especially in David's psalms, because he was a man of blood, right? He was fighting all the time. He had actual physical enemies, enemies who had swords and were coming after him. Um, I personally don't, you know, not at this point in my life. It's not impossible, how do I both interpret and apply faithfully statements like this in the Psalms that are difficult for me to recontextualize? I just don't have real, you know, personal enemies. Yeah, um, which means that some Psalms speak more than others. Um, some passages speak more than others, simply, um, you know, according to our context and also because life is on the whole so much more comfortable in the modern way than it was in the ancient right. world. We more easily misread um, and, you know, get upset. Why is God allowing this to happen? Like, yeah, the biblical writers lived in a world in, in, in which plagues and famines and wars were, were there all the time. That's how life was. Right. Um, and we think, we just sort of not believing in God, but they say, no, 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 it's exciting when you start to get serious about it. Yeah. Um, but I think what... To try and answer your question, though I'm, I'm probably going to go around it, um, <laughs> um, what Scripture does is is like many sort of great novels or great films. They, as it were, give you a way of seeing the world. Um, if, if you sort of really get into something, you begin to see the world differently. Now, um, and I mean, particularly if it's a Christian uh, writer who, who does that, it can be very powerful. You know, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, you know, voted the most popular uh, novel of the 20th century. And it's a profoundly Christian writing. You know, Tolkien had a deep Christian vision that gets worked out. 
um, in the story, even though there's no sort of formal religion in Middle Earth. That doesn't matter. You know, it's in the context of the story. Um, and script is something in the sense that we need to immerse ourselves in so that its visions of the world, and there's more than one, become ours. And, you know, there's times when we will identify, you know, maybe with Job, who loses everything for nothing, for no reason. I, there was nothing he had done wrong to cause God to act in judgment. No, he hadn't done anything wrong. But nonetheless, as it were, the ceiling fell in. Everything went. Everything that made life worth living was stripped away. Because the question was, okay, Job, how will you respond? Hmm. And he responds rightly in that opening scene. Um, you know, how we receive the good from the hand of God and not receive the bad. It's no good being a fair weather friend. If our relationship with God is for real, then we've got to be in it for better or worse. Or, um, so there's that. But there are, you know, other passages in Scripture which may speak more directly in times of joy. Um, when we get married, uh, funeral, I mean, or just, you know, how do I get the strength to, you know, get myself out of bed today? And, you know, be reminded of, you know, great stories like The Manor in the Wilderness. You've got to get up and make every morning. And you can't pile up lots of it because it stinks and goes off. You've got to get up and collect it every morning. And, you know, the servant of the Lord, morning by morning, he wakens my ear to hear as one who is taught. We've got to be there every morning. You know, take up your cross every day in Luke this day our daily bread. You know, these are the sort of the, the deep scriptural resonances that we need to have become part of us so that we then, you know, okay, I feel lousy today. I absolutely don't want to do anything. But you know, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Um, now, you know, we don't know the challenges of the day. But if we soak ourselves in Scripture, then please, God, we'll be better able, you know, to hear his voice, to take up our cross, to collect the manna, to see our Lord and respond faithfully. Um, you know, scripture works that way through, you know, the spirit works that way, it seems to me, through scripture as we allow it to become part of ourselves. So God works through that. So in a way, what I hear you affirming is what I've often called the evangelical sacrament. Read your Bible and pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Often, in the very best of interviews, what we boil it down to and what we return to is what I learned as a two-year-old in Sunday school. Read your Bible, soak yourself in it. I, I love that advice. It's why Bible Study Magazine and the podcast exist. We want people to be soaked in scripture. Thank you, Dr. Moberly, for sharing your time and expertise. Okay, thanks Mark, very much for being The rules for 
your podcast interviewers don't tell you what you're supposed to do when you kind of disagree with the interviewee. And yeah, actually you saw, I wasn't quite with Dr. Moberly on a couple of his thoughts on how to recontextualize scripture. That is what counts as in bounds. I want to be generous. I want to be charitable, but I feel like if I'm not standing on the Bible when I teach the Bible, then I am like Wiley Coyote, I'm standing out over nothing and I'm going to fall. I'm not saying that's where Dr. Moberly is. He is an eminently careful interpreter of scripture. I've read him enough to know that. So all I can say is that what I'm going to do and what I recommend that you do is consider. Think through the approach that he recommended. Watch for people in your ecclesial life who are using scripture in a way that maybe makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Try to discern for yourself by running with the grain of scripture and soaking yourself in it. What readings are inbounds and what readings are out of bounds? What readings are merely allusive to scripture, that is using its language but kind of playing with it self-consciously, and which readings are abusing and twisting scripture? There is a line. I don't know that that line is bright and clear in all circumstances. And the Spirit is allowed to use bad readings of Scripture to do good things. The Lord can draw a straight line with crooked sticks. That's what He does all the time. I think, however, if you watch this podcast or listen to it, that your goal is like mine. We want to fall in line with the intention of the biblical writers and the intention of the Spirit as much as possible by God's grace with the illumination of that same Spirit. I hope this wide-ranging conversation was helpful for you and stimulating. Thank you for joining us for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Our main tech is Jack Underwood, and join us again next time.